When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We went to go watch a Disney movie in the theaters, and all of a sudden, these little coconut warrior guys are coming on a giant raft. And I lean over to my wife, and I'm like, Oh, we're going to make coconut warriors. I'm like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, that's, that's where my mind instantly goes seeing those like, Oh my God, we've got to make some coconut warriors. Those, those are just too cool. It's often refreshing to talk to somebody who just loves what they do. I sit down with Tom Anders of impact miniatures. I was amazed at the story of how he came to own the company some of his successes as well as close calls, some new insights in the process of making miniatures. I think all of us can learn about the reality of running a gaming company. More than anything, Tom is funny, kind, and passionate. Make sure you stick around to the end where we talk about what the future is of miniature manufacturing in light of 3D printing. A quick floor head shout out to some of our newest patrons, Johan Hofflin, Michael Hengel, Ben Lawson, John Sheffield, and Connell Damiano. All right, let's sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Tom. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today, we are talking to Tom Anders of Impact Miniatures. They are most known for their great minis for fantasy football and other sports-inspired mini games. Tom, welcome to the third floor. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Tom, you've been uh, you've been in the business for a while as a player and as a creator and stuff, but I want you to go back in time with me. So, there was a day, and I have a feeling it wasn't yesterday, where you knew nothing about rolling dice and pushing miniatures and, and playing games. And then suddenly it was introduced to you. So I'd love to hear how old you were and how just miniature gaming was first introduced. Uh, miniature gaming. Okay, let's roll back. So first got into these style of games, junior high, uh, first edition D&D. Nice. The old, I had to use the crayon to color in oh, the yeah. dice to color in the dice <laughs> that's right old school that that dates me right there for anyone trying well, I, who doesn't know I'm my right age. there with you the, my, I, and then and then if you're like me like like the white would come out of the numbers so then you had to oh, go yeah. dig into your white crayolas oh, to yeah. fill it in <laughs> um 
I I still have those dice. My God, those dice do not age well. They're like so beat up. Um, so that that was really how I got in into um into the whole gaming world was an early D and D. Um, that segued into mag magic. Um, yep. and I became an actual uh, competitive magic player. I was ranked uh, 13th in my state at the highest point that I reached. Wow. Um, and that then segued into me figuring out how to pay for my magic habit by <laughs> buying the cards wholesale and selling them to a game store that didn't have the capital to do it themselves. Right. And then splitting the profit with them and then using that profit to buy more cards, <laughs> which got that got me into the whole, oh, wow, you can you can play this hobby. And if you're not upset about being a business person, you can also pay for your hobby by getting other gamers to pay for your hobby. Yep. And that kind of started the whole seeds of I'm a gamer, but I'm also someone who sells to gamers. Um, the next game then that I, I started playing um, quite a bit of was Blood Bowl and got very involved with that into the league play. I, I played. Um, I played that for several years got very involved in the online community. And again, um, when Games Workshop stopped supporting uh, third edition, yep. I got very involved in picking up miniatures from the secondary market and then turning them around and selling them. So that really was my introduction. And that was all through eBay. So that's kind of the early, early days of me miniature selling was um, I would spend a lot of time calling GW for their back catalog and buying old miniatures from their back catalog that were easily used as blood bowl figures. And then right. also hunting down the, 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 the actual third edition and then selling them on eBay. What's, what's amazing to me about that, Tom, and I've talked about it on the show before. Um, and believe it or not, I've never played blood bowl. Um, I've watched it played. Um, it's a little too spiky dicey for me, um, but totally get the appeal. Totally get the appeal. Yeah. And I ended up finding home in Guild Ball, um, which, okay. you know, is as a child. Let's be honest. It's a child of Blood Bowl, right? Yes. Um, though very different. But um, yes, what's what's interesting to me and I've talked about it on the show before is when Games Workshop laid down the game. I mean, I don't think there's another game that was held up by a community as much as Blood Bowl was. I mean, long after GW had forgotten about it, like Blood Bowl tournaments were having like tons of people show up, like tons oh, yeah. of people show up. It was unbelievable for a quote unquote unsupported game. And I'd be curious, Tom, why do you think that is? What was it about it that just kept it alive? So in my opinion, one of the things that really helps is that despite the fact that it's a very dicey game, it really is a dice game where you can somewhat control the randomness by the, right. by your strategy. Um, the fact that you, the, the NAF, which is the official organization that tracks tournament standings of players and has been around now for many, many years. There's a reason the same players are at 
the top of those charts. Yeah. Um, if it was if it was just a random dice fest, that would not be the case. No question. Same um, argument about poker, right? People that say poker right. is just a game of chance. Well, it's, unfortunately, it's, the numbers don't right. back you up. So, <laughs> you know, um, it's and it, it's a lot about. And the other thing is the variety of the teams means that uh, most players will not just bring the same team to every tournament. Nice. So uh, most players want to be diverse and have different experiences. There are actually awards on the NAF for managing to rank um, above a certain rating in every single team that's in the game. Oh, that's cool. The last I knew, I think it's 25 teams. Wow. 25 different teams. Um, And so that variety, the fact that I can come in. Now, one of the things, I I was a pretty good player um, in my leagues. So I became a big fan of playing Halflings because Halflings was one of the worst teams in the game. But I enjoyed the challenge of trying to win with that team. Um, So you you get some of that. So where... Where does it come from? I think that there's the the number of teams and the depth of the strategy. Uh, the fact that it's a very intense game that despite being a war game, if you're playing between two players that know what they're doing and one doesn't take forever to think, it should be playable in two hours every time you sit down. And that's a huge selling point. Um, right. Um, nowadays, and I know from having impact miniatures there's a big push to get those when if you come out with a new game playing times over an hour and all of a sudden you've like crossed some magic threshold but um the serious strategy miniature games with blubble coming in at two hours is very good and the other thing the the thing that games workshop i still believe does right is the lore the the lore behind blood bowl is amazing i mean i love it they're there are entire there was entire sites dedicated to building on the lore or documenting all the pieces of the lore. Um, that is one thing that they've always gotten right, though. Let's be honest. I mean, people yeah. can sit and criticize at Games Workshop all day long, but they nail the lore every oh, yeah. time. And in fact, my um, long before I ever started Impact Miniatures, my online um, name was Galax Starscraper, who in Blood Bowl <laughs> lore is the a uh, storm giant referee who was the only who was the largest referee that ever came in the game mainly because he showed up and said I want to be a referee and they said no and he stomped six people into the ground they're like hey fine <laughs> and i just i i tend to be very forceful in a conversation when i'm having a debate and that just seemed to be a matchup and <laughs> and i've also been always extremely interested in the rules of games and how to make them better. Um, yeah. Even when I was a k- young kid, I would write like custom rules for the board games that my parents would give me. So um, I was very involved in the communities discussing the rules. How do we make this better? Uh, long, long before um, F- uh, Fanatic came out and tried to bring Blood Bowl back for right. uh, the next edition. So, so let's go back even farther, Tom. Um, I mean, obviously your addiction before that was, was magic, the gathering. And, um, 
uh, listeners have heard this before, but I was in I was part of the beta uh, for for Magic oh, the Gathering. Wow. That's how old I am. Um, and uh, let's see, it would have been ninety four. Wow, ninety three, ninety four. I finished the beta, uh, and as a thank you, uh, Wizards sent out a full set of the of the first edition, right? Of Alpha. Um, Holy but crap! I had, no, not Alpha. I didn't get the Alphas. Oh. Um I owned some Alphas, but I I only had, uh, okay. so, but I had a full beta set. So I had full a full beta. beta set. Had all the moxes and everything, right? And this is like, like and you've made the mistake after. of selling that before. Oh, this oh, it wasn't point. a mistake. Well, I mean, it's yeah. a mistake if you think of it now. But <laughs> yeah. so I sold. Now remember, there's no eBay, right? All is, right. all it was is back there was text based bulletin boards. Um, I sold my full beta set. It had to been ninety four, ninety five issues on what I'm guessing for like four. I think it was forty five hundred dollars. For the whole set of cards, which now you're like, well, Craig, you're an idiot. That's like, you know, twelve thousand dollars worth. <laughs> that w- but, but back yeah. then, back right. then to set to sell a set of cards for you know five grand yeah. was just like uh, unbelievable. And yeah. I, I mean, I remember the first time I played the game, and I was just like, oh, this is a great game. But there was no way I would have ever predicted that twenty five years later it would be bigger now than it's ever been before that it was only grown. So what was it for you, Tom? What made you say, holy crap, I need to I need to come up with a way to feed my addiction because I love this game so much. What did you uh, love it about was, it? It was getting well, I I love strategy games. Um, and I think that's part of why the the randomness and blah blah. I mean, magic is again controlled randomness. Yep. Um and I've I've never forgotten the first tournament I ever won, I sat down and I knew one of the best players was this player that absolutely loved red. And <laughs> I sat down, we get, I made it to the final match against him just as I kind of thought would happen. And he just started stomping me. And I was like, you know what? I concede. And the players were all like, you're not even going to finish. I'm like, no, I quit. And <laughs> they're like, what? Like first match to him grabbed my sideboard, which was entirely designed only for him. Right. Threw in 15 cards specifically designed to screw his deck and wipe the floor with him to win my first tournament. Isn't that something? That that type of gameplay and I mean that's that's just not the game itself, but that's a whole nother layer of reading the room, knowing yep. what you think is going to be there to, to to come in advance. Oh, I just I absolutely love that. And my specialty was uh sealed deck. So those are the tournaments I love to go to the the uh, open the pack and in minutes try and figure out what is it that will get me to the end of this and win the prize. Um, It's so cool. So it's I just love those layers of of strategic thinking and strategy. Um, And in a similar story, you selling your set um, impact was started from the money I got from selling my magic card collection. That's amazing. So I got um, $10,000 <laughs> from awesome. selling my magic card collection. And that was the, the seed capital that was used to start impact miniatures in uh, 2006. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. So um, do you now have you fell back in? Do you still play a little no. magic here and there? Or? No. No. Is there no. any other card games that tempt I, you at all? Um, I'm very involved in a mobile game. Oh, the, okay. Which one? Um, Dungeon Boss. 
and I'm actually I'm actually um, the leader of one of the top. Uh, I'm actually the leader of one of the guilds and one of the top guild families. Um, I'm uh, currently ranked the uh, well, last I looked, the 14th most powerful player in that game. Nice. So that's that's when I take time off. That's what I do. But I don't play with the I just don't have the raw time. So what? Yeah. The, where I segued into how big the company's gone, my family, I, I, I am not joking. I, I normally work 90 hour weeks. I um my so impact is very demanding. It is a company yeah. that needs to have a full time person helping me um, and doesn't. My my family is awesome. Um, what we ended up doing uh, about a year ago and this kind of gets into, I mean, some of the setup, but Impact really now has three major products. The miniatures business, um, my oldest son takes care of. The dice business, my wife helps me take care of, and my youngest son helps with the 3D printing. And then I kind of keep everything (laughs) running. So So it's truly a family business, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. So guys, the Insider Insights series allows me to talk to developers, designers, artists, writers, and industry insiders about their creative process and how they approach their work. Today, we will learn how Impact Miniatures came to be, Tom's process for designing and creating great miniatures and games, and what it takes to run a company in the gaming industry. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to learn more about the formation of Impact Miniatures and what it is. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. DZ Learguard here, creator of the M3E Crew Builder app. And I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars because supporting great content creators like them is one of the best ways to help grow this game. So to join me and the other floor heads, go to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars. And we will see you there. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. A 
I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to some of the original patrons that started us on this journey. Special thanks to Jesse Ellis, Sam Newman, Nick Westbrook, Jim Ortiz, Kevin Smith, Keith Suderman, Matthew Riddle, Dane Leergaard, Jeremy Peace, Wookie Gunner, Chris Blue, Voslov, Kim Otto Nielsen, Rolf Randall, John Haas, Cody Hyatt, Michael Roper, Ambrose Ingram, Pudgy Hobbit, Kaiser and Crimson, Brandon Sommer, Jason Reddy, Jason Burry, Kylie Woodland, Brian Schooner, Alan Voltz, and Owen. Because of you and the 100 other plus patrons, I'm able to put out content on a regular basis, and I appreciate it. So now that we kind of get an idea of who Tom is and how Tom uh, fell into everybody's favorite addiction, tabletop gaming, um, and we and we peeked in a little bit to see how Impact Miniatures, you know, the seed money came from selling Magic cards. Um, but what I want to do, Tom, is first of all, get an idea of when did you just stop for a second and say, I'm going to sell all my Magic cards and, and start start a mini company? Did did. Like what? What was what? What pushed you over the edge? Was it a thought that you had been considering for a while, or? So actually, um, I didn't start Impact. Oh, okay. Uh, Im- Impact was started by um, a, a group of six other guys, um, led by um, Ewan McCurcher. I think I got Ewan's last. I don't think I ever heard Ewan pronounce his last name. Um, that, Ewan was a sculptor. And he sculpted this really cool fantasy football Yeti snow troll. <laughs> and then people were like, I want to buy it. I want to buy it. Um, and so he started selling it to him. And I guess my understanding is that over drinks, him and five other guys decided we could start a miniature company and Ewan will sculpt the minis and we'll figure out some way to sell them. And then several of the those six guys said, hey, you should bring Tom in. Now, this is like we're at only the second week of talking at this point. And they're right. like, like, look, Tom is so involved in this uh, in the game side and the online right. community. We think he could really help the company. So they sent me an invite. Like, would you like to join us for this effort to create a new company? Um, and I said, yes. And we could do a whole nother podcast on what the next year was like, but let us I'm just sure. say that two years later, the seven people were down to three. Wow. Um, in, and then, um, including the, the guy who was the sculptor was gone. Jeez, so okay. like I said, this could be a whole nother podcast to sure. describe that whole story. Um, and then uh, in, I actually looked this up so I would get the dates right. Um, and then, yeah, by 2000, so we started in April of 2006, we opened. In by 2008, we were down to just three members. Wow. Um, in 2010, uh, my current business partner, Chris Ackerson, he bought out one of the partners. And then in 2011, Chris and I bought out the third partner. Now I'd be curious, um, it, Tom. Um, when when they ring you up, what were you doing? Um, how were you making a living I, when you got called and said, oh, "Hey, do you want to help out?" I uh, I was a um, financial business auditor. Okay. So my job was um, I would go into companies 
Yep. And I would write programs to go through their financial data and make sure that they were on the up and up. Right. Um, which creates some fun stories because yes, I did find fraud in my time doing that. So <laughs> I'm sure, I'm um, sure. I, I work for uh, one of the big four firms, and we have an entire audit oh, division. So Price, very familiar Price, with it. Yeah. Price Waterhouse Coopers for 20 years. Oh, okay, nice. Um, and then um, so that's what I was doing when they got hold of me, and I ran. So I ran it. I ran in. I. I quickly became the person that was running impact very shortly after all of this got set up. Um, it, it turns out the guy with the CPA who's actually had, they didn't know had already done the actively buying and selling miniatures for years on the side through eBay was the one, you know, that ended up quickly taking over. Well, yeah, um, you had the background, you had the background right. from both sides, right? You had familiarity with it from a hobby perspective. And, and obviously you came from a financial background, which is huge. Right. Um, and I definitely can tell you from those, I definitely understand why they say 80% of small businesses fail in the first yeah. two years. Um, we had a, we had a great advantage. Everyone in that company, nobody needed that money at that time. Um, so it was a weekend business. We made nothing. Like, I right. don't think Impact turned a profit until it was six years old. Um, but it was it was fun because any money we got, we're like, oh, let's make another miniature. <laughs> Here, Mr. Sculptor, have all our money. And so, you know, it was it was a great time. Um, and, and then things uh, things changed in uh, 2010. Uh, so the company's now been open for four years. Um my company outsourced the entire programming, uh, the entire programming division to India. Wow. Okay. And laid off my entire group. Um, so, you know, 20 years with the company and poof, it's, it's like gone. Yeah, that's how it um, happens. Unfortunately. Yeah. And, uh, I laugh because that failed miserably, but you know, that didn't get me my job. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, but I, I sat down with my wife and I'm like, well, I can, I can try and find another job um, or we can take this miniature company that isn't turning a profit and really go all in right. and try and make that work. Um, and then I'll, I'll be able to work from home. And so um, we agreed to a test and that was, I had two car payments at that time. And we went out to the miniature world or the forums and all the online and said, hey, we need, and I don't even remember the amount, but the payoff amount for the two vehicles, we need that much in sales this month, extra. We get this, I will go do Impact full-time. We don't get this, Impact might become something that very rarely releases a new mini. It becomes truly a hobby business. Yeah, because so I was, was going to have to start over a little, a little bit we, of a, like a little Kickstarter action. there, Yeah. Huh? And um, we got we got the money to That's pay off awesome. both of my vehicles, which reduced how much money I needed every month just to get along. Yep. And and so um, I got. Uh, 20 years with one of those big four companies, um, they actually gave me a fairly decent severance package. Nice. Um, and so that gave me money for one year. Yep. Which was what I spent. Remember I told you it was five years before we turned profitable. Well, that's what I did with my severance package was spent one year living off of that. Like 
this company has to become profitable right now. <laughs> so, so Tom, you know, at some point, at some point you, 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 you bridge the mark and you go from the red to the black on there. Mm. Um, looking back on it now, do you have a sense of what pushed it over the edge? Which, what, what, what did, what did you do? What did the team do? What did impact miniatures do to finally turn that corner? Do you remember? Or was it just so gradual um, and just kind of happened? One of the biggest things for us that that turned that corner was um, we got into a very early relationship with one of the very first ever uh, centrifuge resin, resin casters. Interesting. Um, and what that meant was we could produce an entire fantasy football team uh, with 16 to 18 models and sell it for $35. Wow. Um, and at $35, we could even wholesale it to, right. to mom and pop shops. So the cost on the product was uh, low enough. Uh, and that was new. No one, we were the very first company to really do that, that high volume mass production. Now, they weren't as I've always I've always been free to admit they were not as prettily sculpted as as some of the other companies. But it, it, at that time, it was a comparison of, hey, I can get an entire team that's pretty well sculpted yeah. for thirty five dollars or I can buy a metal team for one hundred and twenty. And that that really was one of the big things that um, changed things. And then the other major, uh, major change that, that came about, um, that, so that was the first thing that kept things profitable enough to get going. And then, um, we got into making, um, chibi models, which is a Japanese art style. Yeah. With the big uh, heads and the big yeah, eyes. And yeah. we, we were the first company to mass produce singles in a large volume scale, like hundreds of different options rather than, um, you know, there was, there was other companies that were, were doing a soda pop, uh, yep. cool mini or not, but you had to buy sets. Um, or the singles were really expensive. They were like 15, 20 bucks. And we were selling them for four to $5 for wow. you know different singles. So, uh, th that, those two things, led us to have enough money day to day uh, that was able to keep everything going. And then the other big, the other really big one, and I did not look this up because I didn't think this, you might ask this question, but <laughs> we got into, um, we got into uh, Brian Mitchell um, suggested to us, Hey, you should check out this website, Kickstarter. Um, and I went into Kickstarter and because of all of my financial background and, and all of that, Kickstarter made a lot of sense to me. Sure. Um, I spend a lot of time online. So I was already very ingrained in all of the online communities where you get the free advertising. And so we just grabbed Kickstarter and started running with it. And there are flat out years. I will tell you that it was Kickstarter revenue that kept everything going. Wow, um, wow. Impact is actually there's there's a website you can go to that actually tracks all of the people in the tabletop area of Kickstarter um, by total total money raised and all of that. But if you look at number of successful projects, 
uh, Impact is now um, in the top 10. That's cool. And we are actually right now running our 41st successful Kickstarter. That's something. Now I've had, I've had a couple other companies come on and I've heard, we've heard uh, success stories and horror stories when it comes to Kickstarter. <laughs> but, but I would imagine um, with, again, your financial background and your ability to manage the money when it's brought to you up front has to have given you an advantage to allow you to take the best of Kickstarter and, and avoid some of the pitfalls. Does that sound accurate? That is accurate for 95% of my projects. That's great. I've, I've had a, actually, um, if you look at my history, the, the Kickstarter I had that made the most money um, broke over $100,000. Yeah, that one ended up costing me $130,000. So, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and just a lot of things you don't really, the, um, the, the company that was going to do the casting overpromised on what right. they'd be able to do. And so um, sent us a lot of stuff that was garbage and we had to remake molds and entirely redo production runs. Um, and uh, this is something I, I warn people about if when I'm advising people about doing Kickstarter, it took so long to work with the miniature production company that UPS did a rate hike and it was one of the biggest they'd ever done in their history. That's brutal. And the shipping cost almost doubled for the project overnight. And all of a sudden you were like, Hey, we made a hundred thousand. Oh, I have to take out. And I, I actually took out um, a loan against my house to, and that is one of the things I always tell people like there, I was like, Oh, Kickstarter's, uh, you know, it's a gamble. You, you could get screwed. And I says, look, I have gone into personal financial debt to make sure every project I have ever done delivers. Um, I, I have become a much smarter. Um, I have a Kickstarter addiction um, and uh, I pro I'm probably just over a dozen now uh, been completely screwed. Uh, back. Oh, um, wow. That's um, yeah. Now, that's the good high. news is, is that on a percentage basis, I'm doing all right. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, you you learn one thing that's good um, and it's why you can't get you can't get away with this for very long um, is, you know, all of us become a lot smarter as consumers and, you know, being able to look at impact miniatures and say, you know what, they've you know, they've created 40. They've delivered on 40. Here's the feedback. I can go back and look at it. I can look at the comments section of their past ones. Um, you, it, that that adds up and it, and it snowballs. So good for you. And uh, but I I don't envy you. That must have been a scary period of time, man. Saying okay, I'm gonna leverage the house now. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. <laughs> but um, so, you know. um, but we had we really believed that the chibi were gonna sell. Um, and in fact, the uh, the very first Gen Con that we took the chibi to. Um, we, we literally had people walk away from our booth because the, their lines were so long that very first year. Now, unfortunately, it's not like that now. Um, we've also gotten much better at filling the orders. So I'd like to think it's a little column A, a little, you know, demand went a little down, but we also got a lot better at getting people, uh, taken care of so you've given me a great transition i'd be really <laughs> curious what this last year's been like tom with covid and people not going to game stores and not sitting uh across the table with each other um how did that impact the business so we um we got hit by a 
a double whammy. One, we lost all of our convention sales. Basically, we thought we had conventions. And then within a period of three weeks, all of my conventions canceled. Um, And that is, I mean, that's, it's not as bad. I was talking to one of my, um, one of my friends in the miniature business and you know, it's always one of those, you think it's bad and then you get to talk to somebody else. You're like, Oh, maybe, you know, it's not so bad. Um, but uh, he lost 80% of his sales in three weeks because that's how much he makes on his conventions for his company. Um, for us, one of the examples we actually, and this is the accountant in me impact uses a 13 month calendar Right. The 13th month, the 13th month is Gen Con. Yep. That tells you just right there yep. how big that that one four day event is for my company. Right. Um, and then Adepticon uh, is like a, a mini Gen Con. We usually make we usually make about 50 percent of the sales um, at Adepticon that we will at Gen Con, which always amazes me because it's it's like a tenth of the number of people. But since yeah, but it's, it's a, a little bit more focused than Gen a, Con, right? It's a miniature gaming convention. Hey, <laughs> right. miniature company. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's it's a better match. Absolutely. No, that's all right. The other brutal part about that, uh, Tom, is that um, it's not like you just, you know, three weeks before Gen Con, you know, put together your inventory and head out. I mean, you've got to plan way ahead oh, yeah, and, yeah. and spend money on getting the inventory, making the arrangements. So it's not just, it can't be just lost sales time. It's, it's lost. It's sunk money, right? Oh yeah. Right now I'm actually looked at my wife within the last week and said, Oh, this is just killing me. Um, because Gen Con is still not, they literally post every week. Like, Hey, we're still trying to decide. And I'm like, well, I can't pull the trigger and start ramping up inventory because no that's way. just a sunk cost. I says, but I also don't want to have, I'm not looking forward to dealing with the stress. If they say, yeah, we're doing it. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> I mean, that's so to, to, to put it in perspective. Um, the other problem that we had is that uh, several years ago, impact started producing um, dice for several different games. And that has become um, a major branch of the company. The a manufacturer that was making our dice just got hold of me one day, called me and said, hey, we've decided that we're changing what our company does. We're no longer going to make dice. Um, I tried to get hold of an, another company. I tried to get hold of several companies. No one wanted to make the type of dice that I make. I finally found a company that was willing to do it. Um, and they're like, well, we can't. I says, okay, old company, send the molds to the new company. Right. New company gets the molds and says, we can't use any of these. They're, they don't match any of our equipment. They're totally oh. unusable. So I lost, um, that, that was approximately, uh, $40,000 in dice molds that I lost. Um, this the dice was a major component of our business at the start of covid it had been a two years since i'd been able to restock now thankfully the last the last kickstarter that i had done we had extra money so i says hey you know what i'm gonna really beef up inventory and get my cost per unit down if it wasn't for that i honestly that 
that event probably is the only thing that kept impact open. Um, Incredible. During last year is that I still had just enough dice to, but we actually, in, uh, we sell on Amazon quite a bit. Um, and I had actually had to take 70% of our inventory off of Amazon because it was out of stock. Wow. So I finally find a new manufacturer. I'm all excited and COVID hits. Manufacturer completely shuts down. So I can't restock my dice. I lose all of my conventions. Um, by the end of October, um, we were uh, 40% down on sales yeah. versus 2019. Um, and this is our sole source of income. So the, the you know, for say whatever you want about the government, and this is a non-political statement, um, I listened to a YouTuber called Meet Kevin, and he was awesome every day for updating on here's some place you might be able to go and get some money. Uh, and I was able to get five different government assistance programs from the PPP to the Idol uh, to a local Spark program, all from listening to him when he said, this just opened, get in line, because a lot of those ran out. Like, if you didn't get right. in line, like, in the first week, all of a sudden the money was all gone. Um, so listening to him gave us enough money to fill the holes so that we could Thank pay God. the bills. Um, you know, mortgage forgiveness, yay. I can go, you know, I don't have to pay my mortgage for six months. Okay, thank you. That that really helps. Um, so it was it was a, it was a collection of all that, and then November came, and November was my dice arrived from the company, and so for the first time in now two and a half years, I'm able to restock a major part of my business. And we actually sold enough dice in November and December that we actually finished 2020 uh, 23% higher than 2019. How crazy is that, Tom? That's amazing. It's Isn't like, that amazing? Oh, my friend. <laughs> I have oh, stuff boy. to sell. I, can, but yeah, I cannot so, imagine how deep that sigh of relief was. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah, when that when that semi pulls up, that was a happy day. So I bet it was. Um, but so the, the miniature side of the business um, – it, the sales were down, um, but by this point, by the start of 2020, uh, miniatures are were now down to about 25% of my total sales. No kidding. So while those sales were down, that wasn't hitting me as hard as um, by 20, at around 2020, my, my company was, uh, and it's probably still about that that spot right now is uh 25% of sales from miniatures, 25% from 3d printing, um, uh, on demand for, for people doing uh, custom things. They send them to us to print for them. And then 50% dice. Isn't that that's, something that's, that's that, kind of that's, where we move to. That's amazing. Um, so what are, what are the hopes and dreams of the future, Tom? So what are you, what are you hoping? Is there something you're thinking that, uh, you know, you'd want to expand into? Is it, uh, is it just a matter of doing, doing more of what's working now? Um, mostly, uh, yes. So, uh, the dice business, since I, I've now only basically been able to jump back into the dice business for five months. Yeah. So that's all of a sudden it's, 
you know, I had a two and a half year break and now I can jump back in. And so now you're like researching new colors and new options, the games that we make the dice for, I'm talking to them. Like, you know, what, what can we do to help your games? Um, I keep expanding my 3d printing business. Um, and actually I have a number of licenses that I have print, um, licenses for that. I really just need to get, you know, prints set up into the store. Uh, so it's probably going forward. You're looking at on the miniature side, you're going to see an expansion for us on the miniature side from us using those print licenses to get prints of all those 3d prints into the store. Um, I recently expanded to have a fourth printer so that we could handle high volume, uh, 3d printing projects. And I've actually helped, um, a total of 10 Kickstarters produce their models to send to their customers. Um, and then the last, we actually are working on a new fourth. Well, I joke, I says, well, hopefully it'll be the fourth branch. I hope it's that big. Um, there has not been a good miniature base supplier ever in the United States. I agree. Um, they all come from overseas and everyone always got them from overseas because they were extremely reliable. Well, um, I'm not at no point in time. I'm going to name names, but that reliability factor dropped through the roof about six months ago. Um, the, the company shut down its operations in one country. They moved to another. They let go about 90% of their staff. And now the major base manufacturer in the world, it's really hard to get hold of them. Um, and so, I reached out to my dice manufacturer and I says, look, I've never even looked into this because they were so cheap through this other place, but I actually had people reaching out to me. Um, where are you still getting your bases from? Like we can't get bases for our miniatures. And so I dropped, um, I dropped about $25,000 on having steel molds made to start my own base business in the US like high volume so we'll see if that works this is uh, this is when you and it's such a minor thing like it's not super cool like a detailed miniature or really you know cool looking dice but um, it's a staple and we need them so that's good (laughs) and and mass products mass production plastic bases are still cheaper than even if you have a 3d printer even if you're using PLA you're still not printing them for, you know, that much or the, just the hassle. So that's my next next big project that I sunk a ton of money into is to try and uh, become a U.S. based bases manufacturer. And that's but that is cool. We'll see if that works. <laughs> so, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to really take advantage of the fact that I've yet to have somebody on the show that um really has um, created, you know, brought miniatures to life from beginning to end. So we're going to talk to Tom about the adventure of making a mini. We'll be right back. Howdy, friends. Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. 
Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So like I mentioned before the break, um, I, uh, I've got, uh, my share of minis. I think I've got half of my audience's shares of minis. I've got, uh, <laughs> minis for about seven different games. Some are painted, some have never been opened. So I'm very familiar with purchasing minis. Um, what I'm not familiar with Tom is how they make it. So, so I guess my first question, Tom is where, do, where does the initial ideas come from? So, um, I think, think of, uh, a, a good example, a miniature where you, or maybe, uh, your partner said, you know, Hey, here's an idea for a miniature. Where, where do those ideas come from? So like our chibi line came from my uh, silent partner, Chris Ackerson, who really believed that they were uh, a new and upcoming area to get into. Um, <laughs> and so he actually found an artist for us. And then it was, let's make a whole bunch of fantasy and adventures. And, and, and that kind of took off. Um, Really what it comes down to is when we make a miniature, uh, it's a mix of either one or two things, either a game that we've played or read about has mentioned, you know, no one makes a miniature for X. So uh, I spend, I spend at least, and this always surprises me when I talk to people who run miniature companies and I've seen this numerous times from, oh, I'm so busy. I never have time to, to read the internet. And I'm like, how? Because that's where our ideas usually yeah, how come do you stay from. Ahead? Um, you know, where, how do you know what people are like? Gosh, I wish somebody would make a miniature for X. Okay. So a lot of our ideas come from that. Um, then the other side of it is um, I see something like, and I go, wow. I want to make that. Um, my wife, my wife laughs. She goes, you know, this is the type of husband I am. We went to, uh, we went to go watch a Disney movie in the theaters. And all of a sudden these little coconut warrior guys are coming on a giant rap. <laughs> and I lean over to my wife and I'm like, Oh, we're going to make coconut warriors. Oh, I'm like, that funny? you know, it's like, uh, you know, that's that's where my mind instantly goes seeing those like, oh, my God, we've got to make some coconut warriors. Those those are just too cool. So where do you go? So you get inspired by the coconut warriors, Tom. Uh, do you then do you get, then have artists that you work with to say, hey, I, I, let's let's get some 2D sketches of this. We have some really great artists. Um, we used to we used to use artists to sketch out everything ahead of time. Um, fortunately, now. uh a lot, most of the new sculpts that we make lately are all um, chibi based. Uh -huh. The reason that that's true is because there are a ton of 
excellent uh, fantasy football companies in Europe right now. Um, and they have crowded that market with some beautiful stuff. Right. And it's really, it's, you know, is do you what what sliver of the pie do you want to play with with when you develop something new? Yeah, and you have to be and nimble, so, right, Tom? Right, right. So, so I, I haven't invest. I do have some some new um, fantasy football stuff I'm working on, um, but it's it's just it's slow in the pipe um, compared to some of the other projects. I mean, we've we've been running. Uh, I'm running my uh, third Chibi Kickstarter. In, that I've put up in the last um, uh, four months. Wow. And all of them have reached over 10 K. And that's so, you know, that's uh, people, people love, love those, you know, they love the chibi and that's an easy, uh, an easy hit with our audience. So, so do you have a 2d artist sketch these out first or do you go right to a 3d artist? I used to. And I, Lorraine Seltzer, absolutely amazing chibi artist um so we used to do that because we used to say hey we want a and we would kind of describe and nowadays um a lot of times what i'll what we'll do is get an inspiration from i i watch uh i have a funimation account so i watch a lot of anime and a lot of times what i'll do is um grab screenshots and i'll go to i've i have two very talented chibi sculptors that I work with and I'll be like, Hey, I love this pose. And I'm not trying to not, not trying to copy someone's IP, but say, Hey, sure. I think if we could make like, you know, it's some type of like, I see that. And I'm like, wow, wouldn't it be really cool if we had like um, a bear barbarian in that pose, like that fantasy guy, um, let's give them a great big axe. And I mean, so a lot of times what I'll, what we might be doing is sending a, you know, an actual picture from something else as inspiration for a pose. Um, I've studied a lot of, um, medieval weaponry. So a lot of times I'll be like, and, and let's pull out this, this weapon that no one ever sees and let's put hit that on him. Um, and so they're really good, uh, taking just that kind of generic description and just going straight to sculpting. Um, in fact, wow, that's great. In fact, um, my one, my one sculptor, Herberto does a Twitch stream. Um, he runs Marchan miniatures. I highly recommend it. Uh, twice a month. He sculpts a chimney model live start to finish in like two hours. That's and it's amazing. just amazing to watch him do it. And um, so I have I work with him and I have a contract with him to get one chibi model a month from him. And so every month it's like, hey, hey what do we want to do? You know, um, like the the model for last month was a, uh, a honey badger druid. So uh, it's, you know, it, it really just depends on what sounds a lot of times with the chibi is what sounds fun. Sure. Because that's sure. what sells Chibi is. Does it is it fun? Right. And, and and obviously having an understanding of what's out there. Right. And what's not out there and being able to right. sort through that, pick find a weapon that nobody else is using in a style or a pose. Um, I would also think, Tom, that, you know, over time working with the same artist over and over and over again, 
that, uh, you know, he begins to be able to speak Tom, right? So that you can, you can explain what you're thinking. And he's now worked with you long enough that you've got that back and forth that he's able to translate what's in your brain and, and, you know, and sculpt it live on Twitch, which is amazing. So that's gotta be huge. That, that helps quite a bit. The other thing that helps is, um, I've been constantly trying to teach myself, um, mesh mixer and Photoshop. Um, for years and so what can happen is a lot of times they'll do a sculpt and send me a picture or a digital file and I'll be like not quite what I want and be able to pull it up and actually with Photoshop like this needs to you know this needs to be bigger and this move over here um, and can give that type of feedback Um, and so everything nowadays I I stopped using hand sculptors. Uh, what was the last hand sculpt thing we did? I think we're probably at six years ago. I think yeah, the last you're not time the I used one. a hand sculpt. Uh, almost everybody um, does it digitally now. The biggest, the biggest, and I know a lot of people have, I know a lot of people that have cried that that day and age is leaving. Um, but the digital models, if you find a good digital sculptor, the fact that you can take and go, you know what? I think the head needs to be just a little bit bigger. Yep. Four key, four keystrokes lighter. <laughs> In the old days, you've just basically destroyed that porch. Like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You know, like, and, and now, you know, you know, I, I, we had one, one product where um, the character was supposed to have like antenna coming off the sides of their mouth, not antenna, um, more like mandibles, right? Mandibles, right. And I had a look for him. And I kept going back to Roberto, like, no, they're they're too wide. Okay, now they're too thick. Well, no, what the heck did you just do with that edit? No, no, that's not what I meant at all. You know, we're, we must have changed those mandibles seven times. And, and then I'm like, perfect, you got it. Um, that was probably the worst editing thing we ever I ever did to poor Roberto. Um, was so the other thing about the 3D sculpting, too, is the technology's come a long way. I mean, you know, it used to be you could spot them, right? When when we were used to hand sculpted miniatures, we right. could spot the 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 uh, the the digitally sculpted ones a mile away. You could just tell. And and now you can't. And now, quite frankly, they're better. Um, and, and and the the ability to part of that's the printers. Right. So the digital sculptor used to be able to make something great, but the printer couldn't print those details. Right. So when they got turned into a mass produced model, you could instantly look at it and go, no, that, that doesn't have the detail. Um, but now the printers have caught up for the most part to the digital sculptors. Yeah. That's a good um, point. And now you can produce a master from a 3d printer that you can actually mass produce and have the quality of the hand sculpt. So, so that, that that leads to my next question, Tom. So the next step is, all right, you finalize the sculpt, the digital sculpt, you then 3D print it, and then do you send that off and get a mold made? Is that what's next? Depends on how many you think you're going to make. Okay. Um, I always I always say if, if you think you're going to sell more than 100, then yeah, it probably makes sense to... So you've got you've to get over the hurdle of the mold costs. Yeah. So for me... Uh, with the, the the places that I go to um, right now and, and have worked with, if I want to turn a master copy of a model into a mass production model, 
that's about a $600 investment. So I now have to decide, am I going to, what, how many of these am I going to make? Because I can just start mass producing those on my 3D printer immediately and I'm $600 ahead. Right. Um, however, the unit costs much, much higher on my 3D printer. Yep. Um, especially since we use really, really high-end 3D printers um, that print with virtually no mold lines whatsoever. Um, and when I say that, I mean, you might be able to see one in the print, but as soon as you prime it, you would never know that it was 3D printed. Right. Um, and because of that material, like we, we were actually looking like one of the models uh, I just 3D printed for a Kickstarter was one that we've also mass produced, but I promised that everything would be one piece and then the mold, it's multiple. That's the other big change is like, do you care whether it's one piece or multiple piece? But so I had a multi-piece model that in the Kickstarter I offered as a one piece printed model. Um, the multi-piece model is um, cost me 50 cents to to 3D print the model is 75 cents. It's a big difference. So, you know, you know, that's a 50% increase in, in the cost, in cost. of, of production. Yeah. Um, and so that affects, you know, that's not so bad at small volume, but you start moving a 50% price up. And now if a model costs $2 to make, well, now it's $3 to make in right. the 3d print maybe. Or yep. So, uh, it's, it's comfort. You know, you just have to over look at the molding and where is the line. And it also has to do with the line of how much do I really think I can sell this for? Because while it's much easier for me just to 3d print things, if it means I have to sell it for $30 instead of $20, do I think anybody wants to buy it at 30? If not, then yeah, I probably need to. And if I really believe in the model, I need to invest in the molding so that I can sell it at $20. Well, and that, and again, this is where your time spent being in the consumer side of the market, scouring the internet, seeing things, watching how what other people are making, watching what other people are selling it for. I mean, that's how you keep track of that, right? That's how you make sure that, you know, you're you're not behind and and you get a sense of what the market will bear, which is a which is a very big deal. Um, well, that helps a ton, man. So let's take a quick break. We can get back from this break. We're going to talk a little bit about the industry. Um, I want to get an idea of uh, what Tom thinks about uh, the miniature gaming industry in general. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com. That's with one M. Or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. 
is valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So, I mean, Tom's been in this industry as a consumer and as a, you know, as a business owner and a, and a creator for a a good bit of time. Um, So I'd be really interested, um, Tom, you know, looking at the arc of miniatures, right? So we go all the way back to Citadel and, you know, all of the iterations. And now we are, you know, we've got several companies that are successful miniature companies that are putting out stuff. Um, I'd be curious, what do you think about kind of the current trends in the business? Um, do you think that miniature gaming's in a good place, getting bigger, getting smaller? What are your thoughts? I th- truly believe this is a kind of a golden age as a gamer for for having the miniatures. Um, the, the, the bottom line is, uh, since I'm so involved in Kickstarter, since it's such a major part of my business, um, the number of really talented sculptors and companies who are producing digital digital model Kickstarters for just incredible stuff. Um, and, and a lot of these, when they go, it's not, hey, I want to... So in the old... When I first started doing Kickstarter, it was like, hey, we'd like to make three models. Please help us kickstart that, right? Because hand sculpting and all the molding. And now it's, hey, we're going to produce 80 new fantasy models that are just elves doing elf stuff. We have, here's an here's an elf riding a bear. Here's an elf being carried by a hawk. Here's a bear here's, riding an elf. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and all of a sudden you've got 80 models. And okay, so maybe, um, maybe you don't have a 3D printer. But most of those projects uh, lately have been partnering ahead of time with someone that does 3D printing and saying, hey, we've already tested our stuff with XYZ company um, and here's the prices. And that's actually my um, my last three Kickstarters have been um, so. Three Kickstarters ago, I worked with a sculptor in Canada, digital sculptor in Canada, and we ran a project uh, together where we offered his digital files, and then I took all of his digital files, I set them up ahead of time, and then offered a physical print option with the Kickstarter. Then my last Kickstarter was my own models that I had physically produced uh, six years ago that... I finally have decided to pull the trigger and let people have the original digital files, even though I sell the physical copies. Right. Um, and so I ran a Kickstarter to make those digital files available and to also sell the uh, physical one piece because most of those models were multi-piece models uh, from because of what you have to do to mold versus what you sure. do for 3d printing. Um, and, and then the one I'm running right now is for um, a whole bunch of really cute chibi models based on a game that a lot of people would recognize if they went to the Kickstarter. That is with another company, and they're making the digital files, and then he sent them all to me in advance, and I set up, well, here's what it would cost to print them all, and so we have print option for people without it. And then we, have, So, you know, my last three Kickstarters have all been 
that world. Like, hey, we want to produce, and all of them have produced 25, 50, 80 new models. Um, but if you got a 3D printer, here you go. Here's a whole bunch of new models. And the digital side of it, you're normally picking these up for it depends on the project, but a dollar to three dollars a piece for brand new models. And yeah, you got to go print them yourself, but um, you know, you get to pick and choose. And um, if you're any good with mech, if you're any good with mesh, mesh, mesh mixer or ZBrush, a lot of times you can take those 3D files and um, do small modifications. You don't like the fact that the guy's holding a sword. Slice, slice. I can change that into a mace in like a minute with right. mesh mixer. Um, so, so many, so many new options. So easy to get. You don't have to have a 3D printer. You just have to find someone who's really good right. and has good prices. Uh, like my company. Uh, <laughs> so question for you, Tom, uh, I, and I'd be curious about this. I, I think if I had a dollar for every blog post that said that miniatures are going to be dead in the next year because of 3D <laughs> printing, um, I, I wouldn't have to put out this dumb podcast. Um, is 3D printing going to be the the end of GW and miniature gaming and, you know, everybody's just going to go digital and print their own stuff? Uh, it's been foretold for a long time and hasn't happened yet. And do you think it will? Or do you think there's always going to be uh, a space for people that make miniatures and sell them? No. So to answer your question, no, it's it, miniatures aren't going to die. Um, the, the, the basic reason is until you get to the sci-fi level where I press the button and all of a sudden magically whoop, and then 20 seconds later, I pull this ready to play model out of the little easy bake oven. Right. It, it's still, I mean, yeah, um, you know, you can get some inexpensive resin printers now for $400. But, you know, at the end of the day, that is alone a sunk cost of I just want to play D&D and I want to have one guy to represent myself while I play D&D. I'm not rowing out and buying a $400 printer. Well, not only that, Tom, but like, you know, if I have the choice of get, buying a $400 printer or spending $400 on miniatures, I'd rather spend $400 on the miniatures and they're ready. <laughs> they're done. <laughs> the The other side of that is um, it, it goes back to my easy bake oven. Um, I mean, this I spent years learning Printing's how hard. to fine tune and make my printers work reliably i spent the first year with a 35 percent failure rate and that i was happy about like oh i only lost one third of everything i tried to do right um and i've got my failure rate down now to about two percent jeez that's amazing uh but it's it's an art um i i am always amazed fat dragon games tom tullis love the fact he spends hours trying to figure out the best settings to print his stuff and then publishing them for everyone else. Like, Hey, I'm, this is exactly what I'm doing to get really good prints. And then he publishes that out to everyone. Um, it, it, it's not, I mean, people, let's, let's be honest. I've had laser, I have laser printers for my business. 
And, you know, office space is right. The first thing you want to do half the time with your laser printer is grab a baseball bat and just start hitting it as much as you can. 3D printers take that and multiply it by a factor. I mean, it's it's the number of things that can go wrong is little things like with mine. It's like I'll come down and while I've got it dialed in, it's little things like my printer. If there is a hiccup in the internet while I'm sending the file wirelessly to the printer, there's no error check on it. Right. So it will receive the file, have the hiccup and then finish receiving the file. And then while it's printing, when it hits that hiccup point, it just stops. That's it. It's dead. Um, you know, little then little things like um, I just invested. Uh, I just invested six hundred dollars on big uninterrupted power supplies because uh, the 3D printers that I use half a second brownout and the job is lost and oh, the entire print yeah. job is gone. Um, so, you know, it, and, and it's it's messy. The you know, if you use PLA. You've got to make sure it's ventilated because that stuff is not good to breathe. You can't just put this on your, you know, your small apartment. You can't put a res, you can't put a PLA printer in your small apartment and expect to live a long life, basically. Or at least you shouldn't. (laughs) I spend an embarrassing amount of money on miniatures and terrain. It's embarrassing. And I've had several people say, hey, Craig, why don't you get a 3D printer? And I'm like, quite frankly, I don't have the time. I, mm-hmm. I know that what it take, I don't need another freaking hobby, <laughs> right? I just need stuff for my hobby. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so my heart goes out to people that, that, that put the time and effort into it. But Tom, it, I was thinking that was going to be your answer and, and, and it, it validates um, what my thoughts were. I mean, and I love what you said. It's an art and it really is. And I, and I see what people are doing to try to, to make it, um, to make it the quality good and the viability good. And, you know, to your point, you know, there's cheap printers out there, but guess what they do? They print cheap stuff, right? That doesn't mm-hmm. print the stuff that you want. And you got to, you've got to make the investment and are you ready to make that sunk cost? So uh, how about some predictions, Tom? What do you think uh, the industry is going to look like in five, five years? I, I'll be very curious in five years, the 3d printing is going to be where everything goes to so the question is going to end up being how inexpensive how high a quality does that 3d printing get um i really think you're just going to see a continuation of this i don't know that 3d printers can get much cheaper i mean if you if you look at a laser printer i mean that that technology actually is not in terms of how the things happen with the the laser heating the the laser etching there it's a i'm i'm gonna have some people like you have no idea i know how it all works but what i'm what i'm saying is laser printers aren't 50 bucks right you're still having so i think the low the lower end but still good resin printers i don't know how much cheaper they can get right um and still produce something that you you feel like having um what will be really interesting is if the high-end printers, like I'm getting, if those come down in price, I think that really changes the playing field drastically. Um, I currently, so I have, um, 
I have four laser printers. I mean, four 3D printers. And I wear them out about every 18 months. No kidding. Okay. So about every 18 months, I have to spend about $3,000 to replace it. Unbelievable. Oh, eh, $2,500. $2,500 about every 18 months to replace each one. Um, so for, so, but I actually, on my Facebook page, I actually show people the, the stuff that I'm doing. Um, one of the best compliments I got, I posted a video, uh, a few months ago where I had printed, um, a Hawacha, which is a, uh, it's an Oriental, uh, Gatling gun essentially created in, in ancient times where it was a whole bunch of arrows into this big, uh, big machine, and they all had rockets attached to them. And they would run over and they would light like a 50 of these rockets, and they would launch these arrows like just a massive, and then they could load up the next round of rocket arrows. Um, well, so the, the, the thing that I printed is just a, showing all of these arrows sticking out of the, the Hawacha. And I took the model and put my hand on top of the arrows and bent them over flat and then let them come back. Wow. That's the resin that I, I actually found a resin that is actually designed to use to make working gears for working machines. Interesting. So it's meant to make replacement parts for machine equipment. So it has to be really durable. It has to be able to flex as it's as it's happening without shattering well that makes really cool miniatures because one of the biggest problems with really detailed miniatures is that if you drop it or you mishandle it it, it breaks um and so i I've, I've got this really great resin but um you know the resin's expensive the printers are expensive and i just bake all that into my cost but when you're asking like you know, that's my rambling way of saying, where is the big change? The big change comes as if that $2,500 printer, if that suddenly costs like $500, right? that really will change a lot of things because now you're producing, um, I mean, my equipment is high enough and I won't get into what games I'm doing for, but I actually work with companies that I print the prototypes that then go to molding for them to mass produce for some fairly large company board games. Um, and that's mostly because since I'm small, I have really high-end equipment, and I can pivot their orders in usually a week and a half. That's huge. Um, and then it um, usually my prices right now are usually at least, uh, are usually around 40% less than what other major places are charging. So I have a fast pivot, really high-end equipment, but if you suddenly make everything that I'm doing very cost effective for other people to get into, I mean, that will really change everything. I mean, one of the reasons why my 3D printing business is growing so rapidly is I've made that investment and it's an investment I have to keep making. It's not a one-time thing. Every year I'm, I'm dropping 10 grand on 3D, 3D printers. Um, but if suddenly that investment is two grand a year, I think you really change who gets into it and what's available. And 
Well, and the other piece of it, though, too, that you bring to it, and, you, and I don't think you're, I think you're underselling it, is the expertise, right? And that's a part of it. It's not just, you can't, people listening right now cannot go out there and spend $3,000 on a printer and anticipate to be run out of the gate making miniatures quality enough that if somebody would use it as a prototype or a mold. Um, and it, there's a lot of time and investment and learning that, that has occurred, I would imagine, Tom, that, yeah. that, gives you, that gives you at least a running start, right? So if we do see those drop... Yeah, I've I've actually broken and done things with these printers that I've been on phone calls with the engineers and they're like, no, that's not possible. And then I've actually like send them detailed videos of what's happening. And they're like, OK, uh, we need to rethink everything because you've just <laughs> like, you you know, it, uh, so you blew their mind. Just, yeah, I've I've had a couple times where the engineers have been like, OK, we we. Uh, we were pretty sure that couldn't happen. You know, the, the biggest one was uh, my company that I go with came out with a new version of their printer. And I got back to them and I said, look, the new printers are using material 20% faster than the old ones. And they're like, well, that that's not possible. I'm like, no, I says, look, take, and this is something they'd never try. I said, here's a print job, print it on your old printer print it on your new printer and weigh them. The new ones weigh 20% more. And they're like, it's not physically possible for us to be adding 20% more density to them. I'm like, just do it. Like, I get this little email back from the company. We have to rethink everything. Thank you. And that's <laughs> you know, something. So, and I mean, that's, that's really, it's, and it's not, um, I think that's the biggest thing I would drive home is, where does this all end up if this if the economies of scale start really kicking in um on the high end stuff and i i the lower end printers can make some beautiful i've seen some really beautiful things um but you still have i mean you still have problem like the and those are all the resin printers well that's you know the resin has to have special things for getting rid of it you can't just dump it down the sink um there, there's a lot of hassle involved, but I think you're going to see a movement of more people able to get really high-end stuff in their own houses, or if the cost of the printers and the resin and everything become more affordable, companies like me that can sell you the prints will be able to get our, our prices down. I mean, keeping in mind, I said that the 3D print right now, material and everything and the wear and tear, that's... 50% more in costs than some, than me molding and making the model. Right. Right. Well, if that comes down 50% and now I don't need to mold anything more and I can sell all of my product as a one piece model and I never have to worry about, you know, somebody having to glue my stuff together anymore. And that would be game changing. And if we hit that, I think a lot of stuff changes. That's fantastic. So. That's fantastic. So, Tom, we're going to take another, uh, one last break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about what do I see when I go to the website? We're going to talk about the product line. Um, if you've never been to Impact Miniatures uh, website, it's almost overwhelming uh, what you can buy. Um, and uh, it's a ton of stuff. So I want to walk through the miniatures, the dice, and something we haven't touched on. I want to talk about some of the games that Impact Miniatures has released. So we'll be right back. There 
are so many online retailers, it can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift and you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So Tom, I want to start off by talking about kind of what we've already talked about. So let's talk about just miniatures. Um, so we've got chibi models and it sounds like we've got almost everything we could dream of um, as far as, you know, the different types of stuff that you, that are available f- uh, from a chibi standpoint. Um, how about uh, for fantasy football? Um, what can people uh, find on the website for that? Um, we still have a lot of really good uh, $35 um, resin teams um, and we have, the, the biggest thing that happened was the fantasy football scale changed in 2016 from 28 mil to 32 mil scale. Um, and so a lot of our product range was hand sculpted. So it was, I mean, for effectively it, it and this is one of the biggest things that when I was telling you like, Hey, 75% of my business now is not the thing that we did exclusively for the first half of the company's life. Right. Um, and part of that is, you know, you, you wake up and you suddenly realize that the thing you started your company in is entirely the wrong scale and you have no way to fix that. Yep. You have to pivot or die. And yep. that's, that's kind of what we did. Now we did have some of our later stuff that was done digitally. And so that's okay. We'll grab all that stuff and you, you it make up. it, 18% larger and huzzah we're, yeah. we're new scale. Um, but uh, so that, that was a, that was a big blow to the fantasy football section of the store. I'm um, sure. The other problem that I have is just uh, like I said, I, I, I just run out of time in each day. I actually have licensed lifetime licenses for approximately 2,500 miniatures. That's that are amazing. not in, that are not in the store because I haven't had time to set them up in my 3D printer and see how much they'll cost to print. But I I look for Kickstarters by very talented people. Usually it's their first or second. And my son actually says, "Man, when you describe this, it sounds like you're exploitive." And I'm like, I don't know of any other way to say it. You look for someone who's really talented. They're doing their first or second Kickstarter, and no one's taken them aside and said dude, do you know how much your stuff is really worth? And they frequently have a, hey, give me $100 and you will get a lifetime print license for everything plus all the stretch goals. And they end up unlocking 49 models. And all of a sudden now I've picked up 49 models. I can print the rest of my life without paying anyone. And I bought them for two bucks a piece compared to in the old days when I hand sculpted, 
it was a dollar a millimeter. I mean, sorry, $10 a millimeter was wow, the going what a rate. Difference. Yeah. You know, so all of a sudden now, instead of, instead of $300 for a 30 mil model, I just paid $2. Right. And you've got the technology and the expertise to actually print it and make it look good. Oh, yeah, which is, yeah. Which is a real big deal. Um, how about this chibi crate that I see on the website? What's that? That's fun. So um, I, uh, I work with uh, Capsule Chibi Patreon. And it's a really incredible uh, Patreon that produces, um, they produce about 12 to 15 chibi models every month for for their people and then what the chibi crate is is every two months i take um all of the models from four and three months ago and you get a pick depending upon if you're in the the basic level you get a pick two you want and two you absolutely don't want if you're in the ducks it's three and three and then i pick some extras to fill it out and we we print them off so every every two months you get, you know, a box that contains six to 12, 12 chibi miniatures. Um, unfortunately, you know, I've got three subscribers, so it, it didn't take off like some loot. I actually don't know how well some other people. I know there are entire places that do really well with loot crates. You see a lot. You see a lot of loot crates come and go. Um, so I, I've been doing this now for two years. So I've I've been running this for two. I still have three people getting them. So I'll I'll call that a victory. It's not sure. dead, but um. And what I always tell my wife is like, look, at, at the end of the day, um, those those three people, it's still two hundred dollars I didn't have every two months. So, um, and I'm old school, so I can look at it like that. Like, hey, it's set up, it works. It's an extra two hundred dollars, you know, um, but. I had higher dreams for that that didn't pan out, but I have, um, uh, I have a license with him and he has produced, uh, over 500 chibi models. And so I have, I pay him a monthly license and I can print as many of his models as I want. That's great. Um, with a monthly license. That's probably, that's the only person that I have a, done a monthly deal with instead of, I just want how how much to pay you for a lifetime. Like I never send you another dime. I'm going to send you some money right now. Herberto. And he's the one who does the life sculpting twice a month. Um, That's great. So it's, and he's the current Kickstarter we have running. He's the sculptor of that entire Kickstarter. That's so awesome. since we're not, um, so, you know, it, it's great. So talk to me about uh, elf ball. <laughs> so, Elf Ball was, I had been helping design um, fantasy football games. And when that project finished, I really felt like there were things that I wanted to do with the roles. I didn't get a chance to or wasn't allowed to. So I worked with, um, I, I bought the rights to a game from Phil Bowen that was very rough. Um, it was, it used rulers and it was very much of almost, a a Warhammer type feel, uh, football game. And then we changed it to be hex based, uh, movement with stats, balance the teams. And so we, we came up with our own version of, of a fantasy football game. Um, 
I had a lot of people who have played it, who have told me that's really great. Um, I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting that it was copied in any way, but it was really interesting in that a lot of what was in Elf Ball for mechanics and everything showed up um, a couple years later uh, in Manix Dreadball. And I truly believe, I honestly believe this, even though I was working with the guy that wrote most of the rules for Dreadball, I really believe that that was both of us seeing the holes right. in another large fantasy game and coming to similar conclusions of ways right. that we would fix them. I don't think he copied Elf Ball. I think we both came to a very similar solution. Um, because there's a, if you look at the rules for Elf Ball and you look at the rules for Dreadball, there are a lot of similarities of how we approach dealing with certain things. Um, and, and I, I was a big fan. I really wanted, I went through a phase where I was convinced that the future of impact was game manufacturer. We were going to start making our own games. I started hunting for games that, um, I could buy from companies that weren't really doing anything with them and, and, uh, change, like go through the rules, update them, rewrite them, uh, and produce them. And so we produced a series over the course of a year, over the course of two years, I think we produced six total card and board games. Um, it took me years to recover from the financial hit that that created. And then when they didn't, the bottom line is, unless you're a really big company, it is really hard to get mass sales of an actual manufactured game. Um, and some of them are really good. Like uh, if I haven't looked a long time, but a long last time I looked at Board Game Geek, most of the games that I designed had fairly good ratings. Um, but, you know, that doesn't help you if no one buys them. Um, I agree. I actually, I actually had someone write a review for my... Uh, my rewrite, I, I did a massive rewrite to the game, the, the card game Force Ball, which a reviewer that I sent it to said, this is the best $5 card game I've ever seen. That's awesome. It sits on Amazon. I don't think I've sold a single copy in the last two years. So, um, you know, it's it's just there's a lot of stuff out there. And so what that taught say, it's, me, it's a real crowded field right now, Tom. It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's hard. And so what that taught me was even though I probably based on those ratings appear to have talent to write games rules. It is not the way I pay my mortgage successfully. So despite having talent, despite appearing to have a knack for it, I abandoned that because I can't, I can't feed my family creating games. Um, and I pivoted, I pivoted into components and that's that's where I live now is I live in the component space. Well, so now let's pivot to what does pay the mortgage. I want to talk about your dice. So what's what is unique about your dice? So what's unique about um, Impact Miniatures Dice is we make the size of dice that no one else makes. So uh, every, many companies can hand you the seven D&D dice sets. But Impact actually makes dice for all of the sides all the way from 3 to 21. So we have all of the dice shapes between those two ranges and all of the evens between 4 and 30. 
where this is important, and I've had people like, I don't understand why would I ever need a D19. So where this all came from was there was a move in RPGs by several games, and I am I honestly am surprised that more games have not grabbed these mechanics, and they're called dice chain mechanics. So uh, I really enjoy watching um, Viva, uh, there's a YouTube channel, Viva La Dirt League, where they play D&D and you watch as they play it. But what makes it fun is they are actors. So when key scenes happen while they're playing the D&D, they actually then cut and show them in costume as their characters oh, cool. acting out the scenes. Um, so it's 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 fun to watch. But constantly while watching, they're like, okay, you need to roll to do this. Okay, I'm going to roll. And now, okay, what's my modifier? Oh, my modifiers. The, and so all of them, right? Dice chain has no, you don't modify. So if you get better at something, you use the next dice in the chain. So if you normally roll um, a D6 for damage and you suddenly become stronger or better at using the weapon, now you roll a D7 for damage. Um, you move up the chain. Uh, and you can either do that single digits or I have, I have, um, I work with a game, role-playing game called Free Blades. They do it in evens. So you move up the chain in evens. You get rid of the modifiers. The other beauty of getting rid of modifiers, and this is coming from my game design background, is most games have to have special rules for nat one, right? Well, you know, oh, you rolled a nat one, so it doesn't matter what your modifiers were. Well, when you have uh, a game where you just move up the dice chain, a one is a one. There's no nat one anymore. A one is a one. And you don't have to have special rules for all of, you know, all the extras that come with it. Well, and it takes the, it takes the math out too, right? right. So now instead of grabbing, of math. A, instead of being D six plus one and D 20 minus three, I just grab my 17 sided die and I roll it. And whatever I roll, I roll. Yeah, that's cool. That's very, very cool. Um, uh, Freeblaze uses a dice chain. Uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics uses a dice chain. Um, I have a couple smaller games that have reached out to me that I've I've sent them sets because they're working on designing. But the two big ones currently on the market are Freeblaze and Dungeon Crawl Classics. Um, they both use dice chain mechanics, and we make the dice for those two games. That's great. Um, DCC has got a nice following too. I know that's a very popular I, game. I love DCC. Yeah. Uh, I think all anyone ever has to do with, you know, two things that sold me on DCC. Um, and what's funny is uh, the, the story of that was my business partner, Chris, was the DCC player. <laughs> I just like making cool new things. So I made a D7, a D14. I was, I made, I paid for steel bowls to make these dice. So I'm like, Hey, these are just cool. I want to make these dice. Well, we also had some dice from some other companies and I had people who were coming to the booth and they're like, Hey, did you know you have all 14 of the dice you need to have a DCC set? And I'm like, Oh no, that didn't Isn't mean that anything to me. And it's like, but I'm glad I can help you. Right. 
I have my back turned to the booth at Gen Con, and all of a sudden, my business partner grabs my shoulder. Joseph Goodman is at the front of our booth. Means nothing to me, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's nice. He's like, please, go talk to him. Go talk to him. Find out why he's at the front of our booth. Um, and that was the whole, hey, I see you have no one at that point in the rule book for DCC it actually included like, hey, to roll a D14, you know, roll a D20 and ignore any result higher, right? Um, I was the first company to actually have all 14 dice for his game. That's cool. Never had heard of the game. I was just literally my wife jokes that it's the dice field of dream stories. That's I built really it and funny. someone came. <laughs> That's um, really funny. So... Uh, we got into making DCC size dice by accident. Um, and now, uh, we are the official creator of those. Um, but they're not easy to make. I mean, I, I, when we lost our dice manufacturers, I was talking about earlier in the interview, it took me a long time to find anyone willing to touch. And it comes down to, uh, I have people come to the booth at Gen Con. Are these dice made in the United States? No, I'm sorry. They're not. Well, I don't want to, I'm like, look, Go find me someone to make my dice in the United States. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, no one will touch him. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, no, wait. Let me explain this to you for business side. People that make dice in the United States, they make them for casinos. Why do they do that? Because the average casino will literally go through like a thousand dice a day at their craps table that they then retire and bring in all new dice. Why would I want to take an order from me to make a thousand sets of these weird ass dice when literally one casino in Vegas is going through that in two hours? Exactly. Yeah. There's just no reason. So you, you have to find uh, for me, you have to find a small company that's willing to do something really weird that is going to push them for designing the mold correctly. Um, and it's not it's just not easy to do that so that's really really cool well i've uh i've been hunting for uh mr goodman to get him on the show to talk about dcc oh, yeah. and um i'm gonna have to throw your name around a little bit <laughs> what i wanted to tell you is what sold me on on dcc was was two things since i didn't know anything about the game the first one was that when you start a dcc game you roll up six characters and you take them into the first module whoever actually lives is the like the character you should use going forward that type of oh my god i love the strategy and one of the things that always concerned me when i was young is character attachment god you come to the game with a 12th page backstory now i feel bad when i kill you okay and i love the fact that dcc they're like look these are peasants going into dungeons they're going to die and so there's actual like it feels real and i absolutely love that the other thing is looking at like the spell effect. Any you just have to look at a single spell effect in DCC, and it's amazing because all of a sudden it's like, okay, you roll for the spell anywhere from it critically fails and your arm turns into a tentacle, to oh the fireball works, to uh oh you just literally summoned a stream of lava from your hand that melts everything in a two mile radius. If it oh like you know it's. Yeah, I, I love it, the chaos. It, it, it's a very, yeah, it's a very unique system. And I, uh, and boy, the people that love dungeon crawl classic love dungeon crawl classic for, for the type of stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. And making the dice for that game. Um, 
I'm going to give a shout out. I hope some he can, someone gets it. Joseph Goodman is hands down one of the greatest people I've worked with in the entire time I've had Impact. Just an amazing human being. Oh, that that makes that makes me happy because I've I've heard good stuff about about Joseph. So, um, uh, if you're listening, Joseph, you need to come on my show. <laughs> I'll, you know what? I'll send him a link. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, because I've been I've been getting a lot of RPG uh, designers on the show, and I've had a great time talking to them. Well, Tom, what a great time! I really appreciate you uh, sitting sitting around and wasting two hours talking to me and my listeners. Um, it was very very interesting to hear um multiple aspects, really the business side, which I gotta be honest, Tom, I wasn't anticipating um to talk about that this much, but we haven't really talked about it uh with other guests, so it was really good to kind of get that insight. Um. Obviously, Tom, they need to uh, head over to Impact Miniatures. We're going to have the um, link here in the show notes for everybody. Um, what are the three things uh, they need to look for when they get on this site? Um, so three things that you think um, people need to look at uh, that'll knock their socks off. All right. Three things to look at. Um, if you are a fantasy gamer, um, check out the section for Heartbreaker. Um we managed to inherit the estate of the person that was the lead miniature designer for Heartbreaker and were able to resurrect all of those old uh, Kev Adams, Phil Lewis, Tim Prow, those incredible sculpts from the 80s. Um, we're able to bring those back to life. Um, and I've actually been told that because of changes in mold technology, since we got the original masters from the estate, current mold technology, I have people come to the booth with our um, resin model that we make and the metal model from the 80s. And they're like, why is there more detail Isn't on your something? model? And it's simply because the material technology has progressed that they can now press more details out of those original masters. Isn't that um, something? But your first, the first belief is that's not what happened. And somehow you've faked it. Like this isn't, <laughs> and we're using the exact, so that was a huge thing. Um, a lot of people don't know that we have that range and they're just, I mean, I like digital sculpts, but those original old fantasy models, by by Kevin, Tim and Phil, they're amazing. And yeah, they have so and, much character and well, a lot of character um, and, and nostalgia. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah, um, you know, there's a reason there's a huge uh, a huge underground movement for literally the original GW, yeah. you know, uh, sculpts out there and the plastic sprues for, you know, the yeah. the Citadel miniatures from, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Right. Quite frankly, they're ugly. <laughs> you know, yeah. especially when you compare it to that but but it's cool it's cool to yeah. in a nostalgic yeah. way to grab that and, all and right so after go ahead and just really quick and because of the 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 resin production and everything like you can get an entire 26 kev adam dwarf army and it's like 40 bucks that's amazing for 26 models so that's that's cool we're what's next after that i would definitely have people look at the chibi section that's probably one of our our most popular ranges um we, I know there are some X's we are working on getting some of the, it's, it's a case of product growing faster than someone having time to put the images on the website. Um, <laughs> but we are working on that, but we have, we still have the largest single chibi model uh, selection of any company in the world. So That's if great. you're looking to grab um, a good single chibi model for a specific thing um, and, 
if you're an adult gamer, you're going, why would I want Chibi? I have people all the time come to our booth at Adepticon, Gen Con, who are using our models to introduce their children either to painting or to role playing. Um, because the kids, they, they, I mean, yeah, the, but for some reason, that cartoon feel of the model helps them connect. And especially for painting, I have a lot of people buy these as the first models they give their kids to get them into hobby painting. That's really, really cool. And then for my RPG listeners, uh, they're obviously going to go to the dice section. Uh, if they're fans of Dungeon Crawl Classic. Don't go to our website to buy our dice. Oh, I will okay. tell you that right now. Go to Amazon and type Impact Miniatures Dice. Perfect. And that um, that is the better place where we keep everything very up to date. I am still working on updating the dice section of my own site, but we're kind of transitioning that our website is probably is mostly concentrated right now on the miniatures and the 3d printing. And we have the dice business um, set up on Amazon. The other reason for that is remember, I told you that there was so much work with impact. I had to divide it up. Well, by having all the dice sales go through Amazon, my wife, handles making sure all of that ships out and if it goes to the store it doesn't flow into the software the same way and <laughs> got it all right so we'll have a link to we'll have a link to those uh to those dice on That'd amazon all right wonderful tom thanks again for uh coming by and talking to us i really appreciate you having me thank you all right and for those of you that stayed around to the end to listen i appreciate it take care Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. This will be probably relatively short because I want to have time uh, to really talk about the last segment, um, about all the goodies that you're selling. Um, but the idea here is, um, you know, how, you th how do you think things are going? What stuff that, that you're excited about for miniature gaming? Um, what do you think the future looks like? Got um, uh, I, think I actually we're did the, write I, notes on your, I, I wrote notes about all your, <laughs> your, your question prep. So I'm good. Oh, I appreciate I'm it. I'm ready man. for Thank you, man. <laughs> awesome. Um, all right. I'll bring us back. <laughs> you still here look uh the podcast is over and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers well i mean if you're here you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to i do appreciate you sticking around take care <laughs>